Please grab a Bible and open to 2 Corinthians. As you turn there, just want to start with a well-accepted principle, remind you of something that I'm sure you all know, namely that if you're serious about following, uh, about uh, achieving a goal, if you're serious about accomplishing something, achieving a goal, uh, to do that means saying no to things that will keep you from achieving that goal. If you're serious about accomplishing something, achieving a goal, you're going to have to say no to some things that will keep you from achieving that goal. I, I don't give that to you today with any specific specific Bible reference. Uh, I don't have any, anything in mind. I'm just reminding you of a common, uh, common sense principle that if you have a goal and you want to reach that goal, you're going to have to say no to some things that might keep you from reaching that goal. For example, if your goal is to lose 20 pounds, you're going to have to say no to ice cream because ice cream is going to keep you from achieving that goal. You're going to say no to it. If your goal is to save up money to buy a new car, you're going to have to say no to some things. You might have to say no to eating out. You might have to cancel your cable. You might have to say no to taking a vacation this year because spending money on things like that are not going to help you reach your goal of saving money. In fact, it will work against it. All right, you get the idea. If you have a goal and you want to accomplish it, you're going to have to say no to things that get in the way. So let's zoom out. And just ask, big picture, what is the goal of your life? What is the goal of your life? There's lots of ways you could answer that question. Uh, the goal could be to be happy. Maybe your goal in life is to make a difference. Maybe it's to make a lot of money. But in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul has already told us what the goal of the Christian's life should be. I covered this a few weeks ago, but in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9... Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Make it our aim to please God. The goal of life, one way to put it for a Christian, is that the goal of your life is to please God. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Our goal is to please Him. Now, why is that our goal? Well, if you read the very next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now again, a few weeks ago, we had spent a whole sermon talking about this verse, so I'm not going to re-preach that. We've got a new sermon to preach today. Um, but the big idea was pretty simple, that, that as a Christian, one of the truths that you need to embrace, one of the things that's going to happen, is that after you die, you will stand before Jesus. And he's going to evaluate everything you've done in your life, whether good or bad. And he is going to reward you based on how well you lived your life, how much you pleased him. If you lived a life that was pleasing to him, you'll get a great reward. If you didn't live a life that was pleasing to him, you won't get a great reward. And I hope I was clear when I preached this before. I want to be clear again. In this judgment, your salvation is not at stake. This is not a judgment determining whether or not you get into heaven. What we believe as Christians is that your salvation is based not on your performance, but on Jesus' performance, that he lived a perfect life in your place. He died on the cross in your place. He rose from the dead in your place. And that if you believe in him and accept that, that, uh, that substitutionary life and death and resurrection, then you are forgiven, you are accepted, and your salvation is secure based on his performance. But that doesn't change the fact that there will still be a judgment of your life. 
and you'll be rewarded based on how much you pleased God. And so, since that is a reality, since that is going to happen, in light of that, we make it our goal to live our lives now to please God as much as possible. Because we want that judgment to go well. So that's our starting point today. So we're going to begin assuming that all of us are on that page, that our goal is to please God. We want to live such lives now that when we stand before Him, He says, well done, good and faithful servant, here's your reward. So if that's our goal, if that's where we're starting, our goal is to please God in everything we do, if that's our goal and we're serious about that goal, just like with any other goal, there's going to be certain things that we need to say no to in order to achieve that goal. There are things out there that will hurt us in our pursuit of that goal, things that will keep us from pleasing God. And if we really want to please Him, we will need to say no to those things. And that's what our passage is about today in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we're going to read it, and we're going to find out what to say no to in order to live a life that's pleasing to God. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. To live a life pleasing to God, we need to say no to some things. And the first one comes right away in the first verse of the passage. We need to say no to partnerships with unbelievers. If you really want to live a life pleasing to God, you need to say no to partnerships with unbelievers. Uh, this is introduced in the command in verse 14, followed by five rhetorical questions that drive home the same point. First, the command. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? Okay. Uh, well, the image is an agricultural one. Right? It's of a yoke, this bar that would go across animals to hook them together so that they could pull together uh, to plow a field or pull a wagon. The idea would be, if you want more power... And in, in that scenario, the only power you've got is, agri is animal power, right? You can't just hook up an engine. So if you want more power than what you have with one ox, well, you need to get a second ox. And you put that ox on there, and now you yoke them together, and they both pull together, and you've got twice as much power as you had before. And it works really, really well as long as the two animals that you yoke together are similar. It's got to be the same type of animal, the same size of animal. If you yoke an ox to an ox of the same size, great. Now you've got twice the ox power. But if you yoke an ox to a donkey, it's not going to work. Because an ox and a donkey don't have the same size. They don't have the same shape, uh, same strength. They don't have the same temperament. You're going to start pulling to one side as the stronger one pulls and the other one kicks back. It's not going to work. 
So if you want to use a yoke, the basic rule is find a matched pair because you're better off being yoked to no one than to be unequally yoked. So that's the image. Now Paul applies that principle to life. He says there are certain relationships that you have in life that are like being yoked to someone. Not every relationship that you're in is a yoking, but some are. Some relationships are so uh, strong and so um, such a partnership that the two of you are united, and, and it's like being yoked. In fact, in verse 14, he's, he uses the words, you know, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? So there's some relationships that you have with people where you're working together as partners and you're not free to walk away. You've, you've partnered, you've got fellowship, you can't just leave, you can't go your own way. You're yoked together. Your life is affected by what they do. Their life is affected by what you do. The most obvious example of this is a marriage. It's not the only kind of yoking that there is, but it's an obvious one. When you marry somebody, you get yoked to them. You are joined together with them. You're not independent anymore. You're joined with your spouse. An example, just a trivial example of how, how this shows itself in marriage. You know, when you're single and a friend calls you up and they ask you to do something, you can just say yes. Because you have no one else to answer to. You have no one else that's responsible for you or that you're responsible to. You get to make that decision. But if you're married and a friend calls you up and says, hey, you want to do something tonight? You should <laughs> stop and say, let me check with my spouse. Not because you're henpecked, not because you're whipped or any whatever derogatory term you want to use there, but because you now have another person who you are sharing your life with. And every decision you make, as trivial as what you, you know, if you go out with a friend or not, that matters to the person. You're not independent, you're yoked. Another example would be if you go into business with somebody. If you go into business with someone, your financial success is now tied together with them. You're not independent anymore. Their actions affect you. Your actions affect them. You're yoked together. But it doesn't have to be as formal even as, as either of those things. It could refer to any close relationship where people are joined together in some sort of partnership, which could mean close friendships, maybe a relationship at work that's like a mentor-mentee kind of thing. It could be joining a fraternity or a sorority, any sort of club or organization that has a very high membership commitment. All of these are ways that you are yoked with other people. And yoking itself is not a bad thing, right? In fact, it's actually really useful. If you've got two oxen and you yoke them together, that's a great thing. But if you don't have a matched pair, if you match an ox with a donkey, you'd be better off not getting yoked at all. And that's the point in verse 14, that Paul's saying it's okay to get yoked. It's good to have partners. It's good to get married, to have close friends, to have business partners. All these things are good but it's stupid to do it with anyone who's not a Christian. And why would that be stupid? Well, it's because they don't share the same goal that you do. The two of you live in completely different worlds. Your goal is to live to please God. And their goal is something else. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be any other thing. It, it could be uh, their goal is to, to live a, a successful life. Their goal is to make a lot of money. Their goal is to have an amazing family. But whatever it is, it's not the same goal as yours, and so it's a distraction. They're pulling in another direction. And if you yoke yourself to them, then you will be kept from achieving your goal. 
partnering with unbelievers is a bad idea. And that's the thrust of the rhetorical questions that you see in the next couple verses. Five times he makes the same point. He says, first, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What, what partnership? You, you, as a Christian, you love the law of God. You want to do what is right. Unbelievers don't care. What sort of partnership is that? What fellowship has light with darkness? Unbelievers live in darkness. You are the light of the world. Those who live in darkness don't like to have their dark deeds exposed. Your job as a Christian is to shine the light of Christ. It's not going to go well. You don't have fellowship. Light and darkness don't mix. Third, he says, what accord or agreement has Christ with Belial? Belial is just a unique uh, uh, name for Satan. It's another name for the devil. And so he's saying, what, what agreement does Christ have with Satan? How many times have Christ and Satan agreed on anything? Never. They don't make good partners. And so you as a follower of Christ, uh, you're a follower of Christ. Unbelievers are by default followers of Satan. You guys are going to get along well? You're going to have a lot of agreement? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Your portion is your inheritance. You have eternal life. You know that you will live forever with Christ. You have a resurrection body. You are living for eternity. Unbelievers are living only for this life. That's their portion, their inheritance. Five, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The Holy Spirit lives in you as a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit in you. He does not live in unbelievers. You want to live in line with the Spirit. You want to walk with the Spirit. You want to be led by the Spirit. Unbelievers live for the flesh, follow the flesh. Partnering with unbelievers will never help you reach your goal of pleasing God because you're not pulling in the same direction. Now, I said marriage is not the only kind of partnership where this happens, but it is common. And so I want to speak really clearly on this before we move to the second point. Uh, so if you're here today and you're single, okay, so if you're not married, so this means kids, kids, all eyes up here, right, kids who aren't married, if you're dating, or if you're of marriageable age, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if, if you're not married, okay, eyes here, don't marry a non-Christian. Don't marry a non-Christian. Kathy Keller is the wife of Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, and she herself is a very wise and gifted woman. And she's pointed out that there are only two things that will happen if you marry a non-Christian. Option one, I'm going to quote her. She says, In order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, these things will have to be minimized or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. That's option one. In order to preserve peace in the home, you will have to minimize the role of Christ in your life. Option two. Alternately, if the believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner will have to be marginalized. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer or missions trips or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. 
That's option two. The spouse is minimized. Here's our conclusion. So either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up, or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. Marriage to an unbeliever will either cost you your relationship with Jesus or your relationship with your spouse. And the same sort of pressure is going to be on you, whatever the nature of the yoking is, whether it's a business partnership, a deep friendship, some other sort of relationship. So if you want to achieve the goal of standing before God and Him saying, well done, you've lived a life that pleases me, you need to say no to partnerships with unbelievers. As we continue, we see also we need to say no to something else. We need to say no to participating with unbelievers in their sin. We need to say no to participating with unbelievers in their sin. So the second command that we see in the passage comes in verse 17. It says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. There's actually three commands in this verse. It says, go out, be separate, and touch no unclean thing. So as we're reading along, it seems like we've entered new territory here. He's not just saying avoid partnerships with unbelievers, but now it seems like he's calling us to actively separate from unbelievers in general, to come out, to leave them behind, to stop having contact with them. Now, this is a little confusing. Because it, if this verse were the only thing we had in the Bible about this topic, it would be simple. Because we would just all join a monastery or become Amish. Right? We just withdraw completely from the world, only interact with Christians. But this isn't the only verse we have on this topic. We have a more robust teaching in the Bible. In fact, this isn't even the only thing Paul says about this to the Corinthians. If you flip back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, so the previous book, so it would have been an earlier letter that Paul wrote to the same people. He spoke to them in 1 Corinthians 5 about this issue. In the context of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking to them about how they need to treat a Christian who has just fallen off the wagon and engaged in uh, crazy sin, and they're saying you need to discipline this person. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so the key verse is verse 9, uh, where he says, I told you earlier not to hang out with sexually immoral people. But then he clarifies, I didn't mean not hang out with people in the world who are, who are sinners. If you did that, you'd have to leave the world. He's talking specifically about the church, namely that there's someone who's engaged in willful, persistent, unrepentant sin, and in order to discipline that person, the church is supposed to uh, excommunicate them from the church. And he says, in this case, don't even eat with that person. But he doesn't say, don't eat with any sinners. He doesn't say, don't eat with anybody in the world who does this. He says, because if you did that, you'd have to leave. 
To the contrary, Christians are supposed to engage the world. We're supposed to take the gospel to the lost. You might remember Jesus saying something about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And salt doesn't do any good when it's stuck in the salt shaker. Light doesn't do any good when it's stuck under a bushel. So we're supposed to engage the world. So we've got these two principles that seem to be in tension, right? On the one hand, we've got the command like in 2 Corinthians, uh, come out, be separate. If you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, don't hang out with unbelievers. They're only going to drag you down. On the other hand, you've got this commission, take the gospel to the lost, go where they are. You've got the example of Jesus himself who ate with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't seem like he was very separate. So it can be confusing for us. How do we know when we're supposed to hang out with sinners and unbelievers? And how do we know when we're supposed to separate? All right, I I don't know if I've phrased this the right way or not, but I think the answer is, you're not supposed to avoid unbelievers completely, but you are supposed to avoid participating in their sin. So I'm getting this first of all by looking at the context of these verses. If you notice in your Bibles, probably verses 16, 17, and 18 are set off as as kind of different formatting. Um, It's a sign that they're being quoted from elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, In fact, in verse 16, there's this little phrase that says, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. So so this is a clue that these are Old Testament references that are being brought in here. And there's a lot of Old Testament that's, that's kind of patched together in these few verses. But in verse 17, the one we're looking at, that one comes from Isaiah... Uh, 52, verse 11. Now, you don't have to flip there. I I can summarize it for you. You might want to write it down to check it out later. But Isaiah 52 is a prophecy of hope and deliverance where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a a people who are in slavery in Babylon. So the the nation of uh, Judah has been taken into captivity in Babylon. The Babylonian army has come, they have conquered Jerusalem, they've enslaved people, they've taken them back to Babylon, and they've been there in exile and slavery. And Isaiah 52 is a promise of hope uh, that there will be a deliverer who comes, there will be good news that the people will be set free from their captivity, they're going to go home from Babylon, finally they're going to get out. And so in Isaiah 52, 11, God says, come out from the midst of her. When he says that, he's not saying, those Babylonians are bad, stop paying out with them. He's saying, you're not in slavery anymore, get out. Get out. He's saying, you're not in jail, the door's open, it's time to leave, get out. So in the Old Testament context, it's not primarily about how the Babylonians are bad people, you need to get away from them, but that they've been enslaved in Babylon, and now God is saying, don't hang out there anymore, get out out, come out. And I think that's how Paul's using it in 2 Corinthians 6. He's not just making a blanket statement about how unbelievers are all bad and you need to not hang out with them ever, but he's saying, you used to be in slavery. You used to be in jail, just like the unbelievers. You were a slave to Satan, you were a slave to sin, but the deliverer came. The good news is the deliverer came to set you free from all that. So why would you go back? Instead, it's time for you to go out, to leave it behind, to leave your sin behind, to leave your old lifestyle behind. You're free. Go. Get out. Come out from the midst of the slavery you used to know. 
He's calling them not to participate in that lifestyle of sin that they used to know. And, and thinking about it that way helps me to make sense of this tension. How do I interact with non-believers without uh, you know, engaging in the sin of non-believers? And the picture I have is, is of a jail, right? So like, I'm in jail with my friends. I don't know what we did. You can speculate, but we're in jail. And the jailer comes and he opens the door and he says to all of us, you're free to go. Now, when he says that, I'm, I'm going to go. Right? I don't want to stay in jail any longer. I'm free to go. I'm going to get out of there. But what do I do if my friends, for some reason, decide to stay there? Well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to stay in jail just because they decide to stay there. I'm not going to hang out there. I've got freedom. I'm going to go. But I'm also not going to abandon them and never come back and visit them, never tell them about the freedom I'm experiencing on the outside. No, up periodically, I'm going to go back. I'm going to invite them. Hey, uh, come out of the jail. The door's open. There's life out here. There's freedom. What are you guys doing staying here? Right? To me, that's a picture of how we interact with unbelievers. You know, we're all sinners. We hear the gospel. You can be free from your sin. And, and those of you who are believers, you believe that. You've been set free. You're out of the jail. But your friends, some of your family, people you work with, they're still living there. They're still in their unbelief. Now, what's your proper engagement with them? It's, it's not to, to go back to that old lifestyle and to be back right where they are and hang out there in the jail with them, hoping that someday you'll all come out together. Nor is it your job to just go off on your own, never talk to them again and say, I hope they find the door. It's your job and my job to go to interact with them, but to invite them to come out with us, not to go back to where they are. To, to introduce them to the freedom that you have as a follower of Jesus and not get sucked back into the slavery that they know as unbelievers. Let me give you a couple examples to try to flesh that out. Uh, most of you know, I'm sure, that, that uh, for me, alcohol is not an issue. It's not a sin issue for me. Uh, I've never drank. I'm not interested in it. not a struggle for me. That's just doesn't make... That's not anything special, just not what I am. Uh, even so, even though that's not in my makeup at all, I have been invited a couple times in my life to drinking parties. And uh, in my youth, before I got this gray hair, I thought uh, this could be an opportunity to share the gospel with some people. Uh, I mean, after all, it's a party, right? People like to meet people at parties, like to talk about things. Maybe this is a chance for me to kind of be like Jesus, right? Go have, go eat with the tax collectors and sinners, and I could share the gospel. Um, it didn't work out quite that way. Uh, because although it is true that drunk people can be less inhibited and more likely to have conversations, uh, they aren't thinking very clearly, and they may not even remember what you talked about. So for me, those couple moments, those couple times where I had that chance to do that, um, it was mostly a waste of time. Mostly a waste of time. Uh, now, because of my makeup and my temptations and whatever, it was only a waste of time, right? Drinking's not a, a temptation for me. Those sort of parties have no appeal in, in terms of engaging me in sins. So I wasn't tempted to engage in the same sort of sins that they were. Uh, so for me, it was just a waste of time. But for some of you, it may be more than a waste of time. Right? So for you, if, if you are tempted towards those sins, if you do have that in your history, if that was the slavery that you came out of, it wouldn't just be a waste of time for you to go into their environment to try to share the gospel. It would be wrong. It would be dangerous. 
because it would be like walking back into the prison and pulling the door shut behind you and participating with them in their sin. It's just not going to help you live a life that's pleasing to God to do that. Okay, another example. Uh, Let's say you're trying to get to know your neighbor, and you've been praying for an opportunity to get to know her. And then one day, almost out of the blue, she comes to you and she invites you to join her book club. And then she says, this month we're reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, is this a sign from God? Is this the opportunity you've been waiting for? Finally, an open door to get into her life. No, it is not. Reading a pornographic book with someone is not a great way to start an evangelistic relationship. It is a great way to trap yourself in the jail of sexual sin. See, Jesus died to set you free from that. That's so he calls you to come out from it, to be separate, from, to, t- to touch no unclean thing. Don't join a book club that's reading a romance novel. Don't watch a raunchy movie with someone in the name of building a relationship. Don't participate in sin with unbelievers. Now, of course, this doesn't mean you cut yourself off totally from relationships with unbelievers. You don't wash your hands and say, fend for yourself. I've found freedom. Hope you can someday too. But it does mean that you don't go with them and sit with them in the jail. It means that you don't go back into slavery with them. Instead, you invite them into freedom with you. So host your own party. Have your own book club. Invite unbelievers to them. Don't don't host your own thing and only invite believers, creating a holy huddle where you're safe from the world. But create your own spaces that are good and life-giving and invite unbelievers to them. Call them out of jail. Call them out of slavery. Invite them to come out and be separate that they too might find the life and freedom that you know. Now, if you do this, if you really do this, and this is hard, right? you really do this and separate yourself from the world, there's going to be consequences. Some people aren't going to understand what you're doing. They're going to make fun of you. You may miss out on some stuff. You may miss out on opportunities at work. You might lose your job. That's why God gives us the promises in verse 17 and 18. It says at the end of 17, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And the reward is worth it. Our goal in life is to please God. And if you refuse to participate in the sins with unbelievers, yeah, you might get some hostility from unbelievers. You might lose some relationships. But God will be pleased. It says in verse 17, He will welcome you. It says in verse 18, He will be your father. You will be sons and daughters. That's what we really want. We want to please our Father. And so if you really want that, one of the things you have to say no to is participating in sin with unbelievers. You need to say no to partnerships with unbelievers. You need to say no to participating in sin with unbelievers. But then there's a third one. And this one might be the hardest. The third thing we have to say no to is your own personal sins. say no to your own personal sins. You see, the great flaw of any approach to holiness that concentrates on separation from the world is that you start to think the problem is out there. If only I could build a wall big enough, if only I could build a Christian subculture big enough that I never have to interact with any unbelievers, 
then I will be safe. Then I will be pure. But that is not how the passage ends. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves. It ends with a focus on us. Not on the big bad world out there, but on the big bad sinner in here. I need to work on my holiness. I need to cleanse myself from my defilements. I need to deal with me. You see, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, of course you need to avoid unequal partnerships. You don't want to be yoked with someone who's going to pull you away from that. Of course you want to avoid participating in the sins of unbelievers. You don't want to get drugged down and captured in that slavery again. But at the end of the day, you also have to deal with the fact that you are a sinner. And it doesn't take anyone out there to make you sin. You do fine on your own. Jen and I often joke about the old scary movie cliche where a person's being stalked and they get a phone call, creepy phone call. And then they ask the police to trace the call. And the police reveal the shocking news. The call is coming from inside the house. Dun, dun, dun. That's the situation we find ourselves in. The call is coming from inside the house. The evil has breached your defenses. It isn't merely something out there in the world to protect yourself from. It's in here. Honestly, sometimes I am the bad person engaged in sin that you need to separate yourself from. The sin is inside the house. So what do we do? Well, this passage is delightfully vague. It just says, cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. So I'm going to leave it up to the Holy Spirit to convict you on specifics. But we do need to do an inventory. We do need to ask the question, what do I need to cleanse myself from? Yeah, we need to watch out for partnerships that are bad. and We need to watch out for participating with unbelievers, but also we need to look at ourselves and say, what is it? What is my sin? What is the defilement that is in my life that is keeping me from pleasing God? And then get ruthless about cutting it off, tearing it out. So ask yourself, but don't just ask yourself, ask God. These are the sorts of prayers that God likes to answer. God, show me. What are the defilements in my life? What are the things in my life that I need to get rid of, the sins I need to repent of? Show me. Then if you're really courageous, don't just ask yourself, don't just ask God, ask someone who knows you well. What are the sins in my life? What are the defilements you see me engaging? What are the the problems that I need to get rid of so that I can live a life that's pleasing to God? Because that's what we want. We want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And when you see those areas... Here's how you start. Confession, repentance, and a cry for help. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've done this. Would you please forgive me? And please give me the help to change. And he will. He will. He does. So the question, I guess, is how serious are you about pleasing God? 
Is it the goal of your life? If it is, you'll say no to partnerships with unbelievers. You will say no to participating in the sin of unbelievers. And you will say no to your own personal sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that salvation is secure in Christ. And thank you that even the victories that we win over these sins in our lives come by the power of your Spirit. So we just pray and ask, help us, help us. Help us to see where we may be partnered with unbelievers and where that's leading us away from our, uh, our goal of pleasing you. Uh, help us to see where we're participating in sins with unbelievers and to just repent of that, to, to, to leave it behind, and then to invite them to come with us into freedom. And I pray that you show us where we are defiled in our personal sins. That you might bring holiness to completion. And make us the people who are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.